Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we are honored to welcome Michael Hart, President of the American Chamber of Commerce in China, AmCham China. In our conversation, Michael discusses his background and his 20-year business career in mainland China. He talks about the important work of AmCham, which includes policy advocacy, business development support, and community building for American businesses in China. Michael shares his view on the current business environment and investment outlook for member companies. We also talk about the Chamber's interaction with different levels of government in China and the eagerness to attract foreign direct investment. Michael has a unique window into what America's largest companies are thinking and doing on the ground in China. It's a must-listen for anyone looking to understand U.S.-China relations and China's business landscape. Enjoy. I think now is a great time to invest if you were thinking of coming anyway, or if you see an opportunity here, because now is the time to go in to negotiate, to say, look, I'm interested, but I need these particular things. It's certainly more of a buyer's market now. The governments do want FDI. The provincial governments have been sort of beating a path to our door. And I remember one provincial government said, hey, could you bring a group of people to come visit us? Because AmCham China over the years has had what we call a bio trip, BIO, invest, business investment outreach, where we would take a group of companies you know, from Beijing to go look at different provinces to see what are the opportunities. This year, we've been very welcome everywhere. And I've told some provincial government officials, like, we just don't have the bandwidth. We can't go everywhere this year, you know, maybe next year. And it was interesting. I did end up actually taking a group of healthcare companies down to that province because the healthcare companies themselves said, hey, we're interested in this province. Can we go? And so that was, uh, you know, it was a nice win for, for everybody. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Michael, welcome. Great to be with you. What city are you in today that we are recording you from? I'm in Beijing, just on the edge of uh, Sanlitun. Just on the edge of Sanlitun. Oh, Sanlitun brings back good memories. I love Sanlitun. Tell us a little bit about your background. So, so what were you in a prior life before joining AmCham? What led you to China and what led you to take the role that you have now with the American Chamber of Commerce in China? So I originally thought I was going to be a European-focused banker. So in college, I studied banking in German, and I had two stints in Germany, uh, one before college and one during college. Um, but I realized when I graduated, I had never been to Asia. So I thought the U.S. Peace Corps two years was too long. So I signed up with a nonprofit um, to go to Taiwan for one year. Um, after I got there, I caught the bug um, and I spent a couple more years uh, with that nonprofit as I started to study Chinese uh, poorly. Um, and then I eventually moved into uh, to real estate, which is close to banking and finance. Um, I had a 20 year career in commercial real estate working for a U.S. Uh, real estate services firm. Uh, and with that company, as it grew, um, my career grew. So I worked for them in, in Taipei. 
and then they moved me to Shanghai. And when I was in Shanghai, we had initially we had two offices in China. By the time I left, we had 14. And um, I was the head uh, of the fourth office. I moved to Tianjin to open that operation in 2006 and ran that for 12 years. So I did uh, 20 years in commercial real estate. Um, I was about to leave. Uh, I was waiting for my son to finish high school. So I started a small uh, investment company. I invested in some fast food uh, restaurants and continued to do some real estate consultancy. Um, all the time that I was in China, um, including in, in Taipei, I was a member of Amcham China. So every place that I was, I was a member of Amcham China in, in Taipei, in Shanghai, in Tianjin. And so I knew a lot of the players. I had been a member for you know almost 20 years uh, of some Amcham. And so when the chance to run the operation uh, opened up, I decided to move to Beijing to take up this operation, uh, this job about uh, two years ago, year and a half ago. I'm going to guess that a lot of our listeners are familiar with AmCham China and maybe more specifically with the role of business chambers broadly and globally around the world. But can you introduce AmCham maybe broadly for those who don't and then maybe paint a picture of the membership? Tell us about the important work you're doing and how AmCham China specifically operates and what their goals are. Sure. So MGM China, right now, uh, we have offices in Beijing, Dalian, Tianjin, uh, Wuhan, and we just recently opened in Chengdu. Uh, we have, uh, we say, nearly a thousand corporate members. Um, so companies of all sizes, but sort of more skewed large. Uh, we say MGM does broadly three things, and we make it simple, A, B, C. A is advocacy. So we advocate to the Chinese government on behalf of U.S. businesses. We also do talk to the U.S. government to help them understand the point of view of U.S. businesses in China. Uh, B is business. So we try to leverage the business experience that other members have. So you'll see people getting together, sharing, you know, what issues are you having on uh, customs? What issues are you having on HR, et cetera? And in many cases, our members are each other's clients. And so it's a good place to do business development as you learn. And then C is community. And so over the years, this has meant different things. When MCM China was first founded, you know, we did things like uh, helping people feel at home by having 4th of July parties, uh, having holiday parties, having these sorts of uh, social activities. It's interesting as the numbers of Chinese students who have traveled to the U.S. have come back, we now see a lot of Chinese students or returnees who come out to MCM social events to feel a little bit of that uh, nostalgia for, for uh, their U.S. home, if you will. I have been a part of a lot of those, uh, you know, as I was telling you before we started, my wife actually ran the MCHAM office in Dalian during my five-year stay there. Uh, she managed that office for four years. So I was a part of a lot of July 4th parties, uh, a lot of <laughs> golf tournaments. Uh, it was an absolutely amazing community. Uh, and I'm sure everyone who's been a part of it would agree. Now, may I ask you, what is your overall assessment of the current business environment in China? Right. Well, I should probably um, go back to that A that we talked about previously, advocacy. So two major policy documents that MCM China puts out each year. One is the white paper, which is sort of a summary of asks and an update on the situation sort of sector by sector. And two is the we call the BCS, the Business Climate Survey. And it's an annual survey of our members about what the issues are. So in terms of how we assess the U.S.-China relationship or the situation for U.S. business in China, a lot of it comes out of those two documents. And so in our previous uh, Business Climate Survey, so nearly a year ago, uh, members were fairly pessimistic. You know, it'd been a very tough slog through uh, three years of COVID. Um, 
there are also mixed messages from the government. On the one hand, we're hearing the government wants foreign investment, wants to encourage people to continue to stay here. On the other hand, there's a number of activities that they've undertaken. Um, one would be you know, raids on consulting companies. The other is there's a new data regime, which is very confusing to a lot of us. And so um, companies are still largely very excited to be in China. Uh, it does depend on sector. Um, but uh, there are a number of questions about, you know, what can we do to make the business environment better for them, which we actually think would align with the Chinese government's goals. What sectors are you really enjoying right now where you're seeing growth, where things are going well, and the landscape is, is just seemingly very, very fertilized for them to be in China? Yeah, I talked to a, a member who's a retailer yesterday, and you know, he said, "Look, we are continuing to open uh, stores. We're continuing to see sales." And he was aimed sort of at the upper middle class or the solid middle class. Um, he had said that when you compete on the low end, uh, commodity type uh, pricing very difficult. But you know, there is a very solid middle class who want quality products. And he said, you know, we're probably rare uh, because things are good for us and we continue to expand and China continues to be part of that. Uh, the truth is people that do manufacturing by and large continue to be pleased with the products they get, with the teams that they have. Um, but new manufacturing hasn't come in uh, in any big way in the last couple of years. And then, you know, those who sell services have had sort of uh, uh, mixed opportunities. I shouldn't say every single retailer is doing well, of course, you know. Uh, I guess it depends on how you classify them. U.S. Um, auto companies, for example, certainly have major competitors now, the homegrown Chinese uh, EVs. Uh, they're giving everybody a run for their money, uh, the Europeans as well as the Americans. Yeah, agreed. They're, they're, you know, China inevitably is going to get great at certain things in certain sectors and where there may have been opportunities in the past where China was new and they were still learning. The opportunities were there, but now as they grow and mature, then the opportunities become a little bit less, but that also offer, offers up opportunities in other sectors as well. And it's always a bit of a yin and yang um, as we go forward. So let me ask you maybe what are some of the key policy and government engagement priorities that the chamber is currently working on? It's interesting that the Chinese government recently issued something called the, the 24 points. So they came out with 24 points to encourage investment. And the interesting part was that it mirrored some of the complaints and concerns that we had had. Um, one of them was around um, uh, some tax exemptions that foreign companies get. And the interesting thing was right after they released that policy, within about 10 days, they actually announced they were extending uh, these tax benefits, which we thought were really, really good. So that was kind of a win, at least short term. I think it was a four-year extension. Um, there continued to be other issues around um, sort of IP and market access. It's interesting in the journey of AmCham China, years ago, we were ac asking for market access and equal treatment. And it was because there were these long um, lists of companies that were not allowed, investment that wasn't allowed. Uh, the lists have reduced, but China has changed tack a little bit. And we're starting to see or hear that state-owned enterprises, which are an important part of the economy, have been told not to buy foreign goods. And so everything from copy machines to mainframes to cell phones, um, et cetera, um, uh, power supply systems, 
Um, we hear that they've been, you know, whispered to uh, not to use uh, foreign technology or, you know, American technology. And so that's been concerning. And so we're trying to make sure that we do have equal access. Again, it's a different interpretation, a different challenge than what we had before. But we do want to make sure that we can uh, play in this market. So that's the, the major concern. Um, I did mention sort of data rules. So starting March 1st, there was a new data regime. Um, China seems to be worried about data going overseas. So there's some data localization plans. And I will say, you know, almost every member has submitted a plan. The vast majority haven't heard back. And so there's a backlog because I don't think China appreciated if you ask everybody to file a plan, they will. And then you're going to have to read them all. And I don't think they uh, ramped up their staff who are reading those. And then, you know, with any new plan, there are some hiccups. It turns out that the regulator CAC, who's in charge of uh, data and compliance, they're not experts in every field. So they've had to reach out to folks, for example, in finance, et cetera. So the, the data one is a big concern right now as well. You've been in China. You spoke off the top about your tenure from Tianjin all over the place, all, all the work that you've done, real estate and investing. Would you say that over all of your time in China, that the trust level has either been the same, has potentially improved, or has taken a step back? It's interesting. It is, in one sense, uh, cyclical. Uh, and you can actually look at what fresh graduates uh, want to do. We'll tell you a little bit about this. So, for example, 20 years ago, a lot of uh, fresh university graduates, Chinese graduates, wanted to work for foreign companies. Um, then there was a period where they wanted to work for state-owned enterprises. Then they wanted to work for the young Chinese startups because the, that was so exciting. And then they moved back to, to government. And so, um, you know, the U.S., um, uh, outlook on U.S. companies has been similar. So it's sometimes we were the flavor of the month. Um, sometimes we were not. And it's, it's kind of gone back and forth. I will say that there are certain people within the community who have a great appreciation for the contributions of foreign investment into China. And generally, those are people who built their careers inside, even if they later went out and opened their own businesses. Um, but sometimes it, there is so much um, confidence right now in China, or there was a few years ago about how China is becoming, you know, the, the world's second and maybe even first largest economy, depending on how you count. Uh, there was a view that we don't need the rest of the world. And so that caused a little bit of pushback. And now we're in an uncomfortable situation where I think China realized that it needs foreign investment. But um, years ago, when I was uh, based in Tianjin, it was interesting. I would meet these people from uh, who would work for Motorola. And at that stage, Motorola had already left. They had been there for 15, 20 years and they had left. But there were so many senior Chinese executives and a whole host of companies who had gotten their start at Motorola. And they just you know, had these stories about the great training programs and the great uh, benefits, etc. And you know, they were looking to run their businesses, whether they be foreign businesses or Chinese businesses, based on some of those corporate values. And it was just really interesting, you know, the impact. And I hear this from many foreign chambers of commerce now. Sometimes it feels like, um, you know, the Chinese uh, government doesn't always appreciate the, the big contributions that have been made. And, and I'll be fair, of course, the companies benefited, but it wasn't a one-way trade. It was we all benefited together. Yeah, agreed. Thanks very much. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners under 30 might be frantically Googling Motorola right now, uh, trying to figure <laughs> out what that company might be. Let's talk a little bit about what we have uh, off and on been talking a lot about over the last few years when it comes to anything global, which is COVID. And I understand, you know, that the chamber was, was, was advocating to relax some of the restrictions. Would you say that things are 
back to normal, same as potentially before COVID, or are things different, or have new challenges emerged? It's interesting. I would actually point to COVID and particularly the three years of uh, fairly clear lockdown or lockout where China separated itself from the world. I would call that actually the great decoupling. Um, I think it was unintentional. But, you know, the first thing that happened was uh, people couldn't travel back and forth. So flights were were cut off. Um, There continued to be a few more flights now, but I think we're still at only a fraction of what we were at before COVID. And that has a huge impact. Um, If you think about um, visitors, so we advocate for more people to people exchanges. And this would mean business leaders, uh, government leaders, tourists and students. Um, every one of those numbers is down. Um, I'm pleased that I'm seeing a few more people come, but the number of people that I've met who say this is the first time I've been to China in four or five years or six or seven years is just really astounding. Um, when I was in Washington, D.C. in May, the number of people that I met who hadn't been uh, in years, uh, very, very troubling because these are policymakers. And so um, I will often hear uh, Chinese government officials say to me, you know, the Americans just don't understand China. And I was thinking, you know, it actually goes both ways because travel back and forth is important for all of us uh, to check in. And so, yeah, COVID uh, has a huge impact and we are not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. If we look at FDI, um, again, I always rely on my real estate experience, but you know, I helped companies um, set up operations in China. And from my count, it takes between sort of two to four years from when the CEO says we need to be in this market to when you can actually open, depending on the type of, of business you're in. But, you know, the CEO comes to China and says, wow, this is dynamic. This is a huge market. It's a huge opportunity. We need to get there. Uh, you're not there tomorrow. You start hiring consultants and putting together reports and doing uh, you know, due diligence on potential partners, sign contracts. And it takes a while. And so I think that the shift shadow of COVID will be with us for another three or four years, at least. I know that even just the expat population numbers really went down uh, during COVID. And, and that would was expected. I think globally, a lot of people tried to just return home. They were caring for loved ones. They were ending their, their global adventures a little bit early and wanting to be a little bit more back home. This was kind of globally wide happening. I saw even through what we do here at the negotiation, our numbers skyrocketed because of what you said, that understanding, that gap started to widen because of whether it was recency bias or what have you, people didn't feel like they knew or understood and they were trying to keep tabs. And so they were coming more to content in order to try to keep an eye on what was going on. Now, And I still have a lot of ties to China. I feel like it's starting to come back. I mean, I think we can honestly separate business and politics a lot of times. Business charges forward. They try to pay attention to what policymakers might be doing and adjust on the fly. But they're, you know, business is moving forward and there's no greater market for any company outside of China to try to figure out and 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 maybe be successful in and that is to to continue to go to China and I think as things start to settle down and and open up a lot more that uh, I think the the iron is soon going to be hot to strike uh, in in my opinion now what role does critical feedback maybe from from policy reports government meetings etc what role does that play in creating policy changes and promoting forward progress. 
when we do our business climate survey or the white paper, for example, in some ways we are giving uh, criticism or critiques back to the Chinese government about you know, how companies are feeling, where they're having trouble, etc. But it's really interesting. So off the record, the Chinese government officials who are in charge of certain areas, particularly where they're looking for additional investment or development, they're very keen to understand, you know, what does this mean? How does that impact you, etc. And so if you think about any feedback loop, you know, whether it be like six, six Sigma or any other sort of improvement uh, process, you do need uh, feedback and it's often critical feedback. And so, you know, it's really important to these reports that we write and it's really important that we have these discussions. Uh, you know, one of the things that I often tell uh, the Chinese government is, you know, a lot of the things in this report selfishly are good for our companies, but the truth is they're also good for your economy. Um, and it's interesting, the things that are good for our companies are really good for Chinese private enterprise, and they don't have a platform to make the same sort of criticism that we do with a bit of a shield. Um, in many ways, the Chamber of Commerce also plays the role where an individual company might be hesitant to make a criticism or give feedback. They can use the AmCham China shield or the shield of any other Chamber of Commerce to make that kind of feedback. And again, it's it's all well intended. Um, and so, you know, it is important. I also tell, um, you know, the Chinese government officials when I talk to them, when they complain about foreign media being too negative, they say, you know, if you were a, um, a news agency and you had 10 reporters and now you've been restricted to two, uh, you're only going to get the hottest topics and you're going to get people who have a little bit more edge to them. If you had 10 reporters, you would get people doing more of the fun cultural stories but if you're, you know, if your newsroom is just down to a couple of folks, you're going to be scrambling all the time. Uh, the other thing is with uh, the news media, for example, when a number of uh, news agencies have now put their people in either Taipei or Seoul or Singapore, of course, they're further away. And of course, it's harder to report accurately. Um, but it is important to have that feedback. And so we'd love to see the ability to give you know, more feedback from us more feedback from uh, the foreign media. Um, but that feedback loop is, is essential. And, you know, you would know it from your own uh, company, your own work. You need to do a debrief after each major event. And that's true as well uh, to give the Chinese government feedback on, you know, this policy worked, that one didn't work. We'd like to see more of this. How does the chamber work with governments from a level by level point of view. I, I, I want to kind of lay that out for all the listeners ahead of the next question I want to ask to kind of understand from, from top level government down to provincial, municipal, what have you. And how, how does AmCham kind of organize itself and work with the different levels of governments first? Right. Okay. Well, there's a couple of ways to look at this. One would be our companies generally on a daily basis, they interact with their local governments. So it might be if they're in a city or a district or a development zone, they work with those people uh, regularly. And it's interesting if you take the development zone concept. So the government, you know, 25 years ago um, said, okay, we'll take this piece of land and we'll give them specific policies and we'll attract companies. And so the local government officials had to take each piece of land and say, now, who am I going to put here? Here. Uh, and they would look at a couple things. They would say, what will be the total investment from a dollar value? And then they would say, how much tax is going to be generated over time? And then number three, uh, how many people are going to be employed? And I always called it sort of investment concentration ratio. So if they had two buildings and they would say, you know, we've got three companies coming, how do we decide, decide which two to choose? And they'll pick the two that have some combination of that, of that win 
of between total investment dollars um, and tax revenues, because that's how the local government officials are judged. Now, when you go further up, particularly to central government, you know, they're looking at very big policies. What should we do directionally? You know, what, what sort of industry should we be developed, developing, et cetera? And so it's a slightly different look. And so sometimes we have welcome ears um, at the local level, but at a central government level, it, they're looking at macro policies. And this was even true during COVID where, uh, you know, initially everything got shut down. And then when it was time to restart, we had a number of meetings with local governments and they would say, now, what do we do? And so I remember one conversation where a government official said, you know, we will start by opening the big companies first. Like we'll get the big factories going again. And I remember one other chamber of commerce said, that's great. That'll work for one week. And the officials are, well, what do you mean why one week? And he said, because our suppliers are small companies. And so we're happy to be open, but, uh, you know, you need to think about how the economy works. Now, I'll just say that when AmCham China works, we advocate at both the central level and at the local level. Uh, sometimes if you have a senior leader come out, it means you'll get a lot more people in the middle who will also show up. And if you get somebody to sort of agree that, yes, we agree this is the right direction, then people down the chain have cover to go ahead and work with you. So sometimes it's essential to get senior government uh, sort of the nod, uh, and then we'll have a lot more success in the middle and all the way down the chain. Excellent. Thank you for laying that out. And the reason I wanted to try to lay that out for the listeners was because I did want to talk a little bit more about FDI for a second and ask you maybe broadly, are the governments in China eager to attract foreign direct investment right now? If so, why, from what they're saying, do you believe that they are eager for this? What are the key sectors that you see are maybe most attractive for them and and maybe what they're more focused on trying to derive foreign direct investment to? And then lastly, overall, is now a good opportunity to invest in China? Yeah, well, so I'll start with the last piece. I think now is a great time to invest if you were thinking of coming anyway, uh, or if you see an opportunity here, because now is the time to go in to negotiate to say, look, I'm interested, but I need these particular things. It's certainly more of a buyer's market now. Um, so that's critical. Um, the governments do want FDI, and it's been interesting. Um, the provincial governments have been sort of beating a path to our door. And I remember one provincial government said, hey, could you bring a group of people to come visit us? Because AmCham China over the years has had what we call a bio trip, a BIO, invest, business investment outreach, where we would take a group of companies um, you know, from Beijing to go look at different provinces to see what are the opportunities. And so you know, this year, um, we've been very welcome everywhere. And I've told some provincial government officials, like, we just don't have the bandwidth. We can't go everywhere this year, you know, maybe next year. And it was interesting. I did end up actually taking a group of healthcare companies down to that province because the healthcare companies themselves said, hey, we're interested in this province. Could we go? And so that was, uh, you know, was a nice win for, for everybody. Uh, in terms of sectors, so healthcare is an interesting one. You know, the U.S. and Europeans uh, lead in healthcare in many ways, medical devices, uh, services, drugs, and China has an aging population and its healthcare system needs to continue to uh, develop. And so we think there's a huge opportunity, a win-win for both of us. Um, the uh, different provinces regulate healthcare slightly differently. And so it is actually time consuming to go and visit each province to make sure that, you know, the local governments, uh, particularly the local healthcare related government entities know who these companies are uh, and they understand, you know, what the benefit is. Um, continue to be a, a broad range of um, companies that are welcome. A heavy industry 
uh, that's polluting is probably not welcome. Uh, things that require a huge number of uh, staff doing manual labor uh, is probably not the biggest win just because there are other areas in Southeast Asia that have cheaper labor. But there's still a broad swath of opportunity here. Uh, you know, China is a huge consumer base. Um, foodstuffs, agriculture out of the U.S. is still a major uh, import uh, for China. I know that you are about to take off on the biannual door knock at Washington, D.C. What is the message that AmCham is going to be delivering in Washington? And what are the major policy concerns originating out of the U.S. for member companies? Right. So, uh, and to be fair, I'll be joining my uh, friends from AmCham Shanghai for, for their door knock. So I will be part of their delegation. Uh, they will be releasing uh, or bringing with them their latest uh, similar business climate survey, their annual business report, uh, where they are bringing the concerns of uh, U.S. businesses to share with those in Washington, D.C. But again, they also, like me, believe that um, you know China is a very important market, one that you cannot ignore. So the short answer is we must engage with China. We have to engage with China short term and we have to engage with China long term. So the U.S. relationship with China has built up over decades. Even if you believe that the U.S. should not be engaged with China, which is not my position, but I know it's the position of some people in, in Washington, D.C., you would say, OK, well, what is a, you know, multiple decade exit look like? So we do need to know what is the short term um, plan. We need to get folks over here. And I know that uh, a group of senators has just announced that they will bring a congressional delegation here for the first time in at least uh, four years. Um, the other one is a longer term plan. One of the things, and you touched on it, that got cut off was students. So there's a lot fewer expats, but those also include a lot fewer foreign students. And so the question is going to be, China will continue to play a major role in the global economy for the next 30, 40 years. Who's the next uh, crop of uh, China experts from Western countries? And we've got to get those folks back over here to study um, because a lot of them did leave during COVID. And that doesn't put us in a very good position to negotiate from a government point of view or a corporate point of view. Michael Hart, president of the American Chamber of Commerce in China. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Todd. All right. For everybody watching us on video, don't forget you have the podcast, the audio only version on all your favorite podcast platforms, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. And if you're listening to us on audio only, you can catch the video over on the WPIC YouTube channel. From all of us at The Negotiation, thank you to Michael Hart and Am Cham as well for joining us. We'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.